Our next uh, 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 talk, the last one in the program, is uh, by Doug Bruce. Uh, I think opioid use disorder is obviously a major issue in this city. Uh, I think that many uh, programs are beginning to expand the services they offer. Doug has extensive experience he takes care of. I don't know how you answered that first question. You take care of 35,000 people in your organization. I guess not all of whom have HIV. Uh, but, uh, uh, and uh, uh, is gonna tell us about uh, uh, his approach to opioid withdrawal, substitution therapy, and HIV infections. Thanks. Good afternoon. You soldiered on to the end of the day. And we're going to talk about drugs, so it's going to be very exciting. I was doing drugs out in the hallway, actually. It's all caffeine-based, but don't. the coffee's good. So I do not have any uh, financial affiliations with any pharmaceutical companies. The picture there is uh, methadone is pretty much methadone in most languages, even in Russian. And uh, this is a methadone clinic in Africa. And it's an important reminder for all of us that every day more than 1,000 people um, are going into emergency rooms as a result of prescription opioid problems. If uh, the CDC actually just recently released data on opioid overdose and related to prescription opioid overdose in the United States, and the District of Columbia, if it was its own state, would be the fourth highest in the nation. Right? It doesn't fall on the state list, but if you were to insert yourself. So opioids are a big issue here in the district, and that's what we're going to talk about. So those are in your packet. I won't talk about those learning objectives directly, but we're going to ask a question. So according to the CDC, how many people died of an opioid overdose in the U.S. in 2016? Do I need to hit the button to make it go forward to do the thing or no? Don't mess with it. I'm not going to mess with it. This is not music that any heroin user would listen to. It's a qualifier. That's none of my patients. All right. Bingo. Fantastic. People from the CDC here? No. Telling everyone the answer. So, yes, uh, over 40,000. And one of the pre-test questions that you had coming into the conference was what proportion of that was related to prescription opioids. And the answer to that is actually 40%. So well, there's a lot of prescription opioids out there, but there's also a lot of synthetic opioids that are incredibly, incredibly potent. As an example, I was at the Yale Law School and they, the DEA came and they had a photo of a normal-sized briefcase uh, during a bust, and in that was a synthetic derivative of fentanyl. It's 100 times stronger than fentanyl. Fentanyl is 100 times stronger than heroin. There was enough in that suitcase to overdose everyone in Connecticut six times. That's 18 million people. So overdose deaths continue to rise. This is something that's not surprising to everyone, but is a really important part of our conversation today. Opioids aren't going away. This isn't the first opioid crisis. One of the earlier opioid crises was actually uh, when New York City had a heroin maintenance program for, for one year in 1919 people coming back from World War I who'd been introduced to a medication created by Bayer Pharmaceutical Company, uh, which was brand named heroin. Heroin is a global problem. 
I was actually earlier today talking to a student who's doing some research on trying to figure out where are all of the opioid treatment programs in Africa. And uh, as discussed earlier, there's treatment programs in Tanzania, Kenya, Mozambique, Senegal, Nigeria, all looking to start methadone programs. Uh, they're estimated there are over 1.5 million heroin users just in East Africa. So it's a global epidemic of opioids, not just a problem in the United States. And as you can imagine, HIV continues to be linked to opioids globally. One of the things that we need to talk about is what is addiction, right? We all have our own philosophies of that particularly. Maybe we may use it in our everyday language. You know, ha, 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 I'm addicted to cookies, right? Probably not a true addiction. Right? And no one near, you know, if, if you really have that addiction, I apologize. I'm not trying to disparage you. Cookies are great. Right? But they're not an addiction in the way that we are going to talk about it. So when we talk about an addiction, we think of two basic things. It's reinforcing, right? So your brain says, that was great, do it again. But a big part of it is the loss of control in limiting the intake of that substance, right? Which is why we always tell you, don't go to a substance user and say, just quit, right? Has anyone ever seen that work effectively? I have not, I have not in a long time. That has not been successful. But one of the things that becomes the hallmark of addiction and is very important for all of us here to keep in mind is that addiction is the hallmark of risk-taking. The HIV-infected person who uses drugs is at the far end of risk. This is a person who is going to take a syringe and use it after somebody else or use substances in the context of risky sex. These are risk-takers. Should it surprise us if risk-takers take part of my regimen, not all of it, take my meds late, don't take them, take someone else's medicine, right? I told a patient once who, who uh, passed away from cancer years ago, and I said, I was trying to get him to get his meds out of his house. I said, you know, I'm going to go to Africa. They could use medicine there. Do you have any medicine at home that you could give me? I thought... I was trying to get just like some leftover pills. Thought it would be small. He brought two shopping bags full of pills. I was just you know, I was like, well, this would explain why he has a detectable viral load. He's saving his pills. It's unclear what he was saving them for, right? A rainy day fund. It's unclear. Uh, so one, and you do know like, people have. There's a whole street value for HIV therapy, right? That's we had a big issue with that in New York City years ago. So why do people take drugs? I think this is the fundamental question. Well, one is obviously just to feel good, right? If drugs felt like algebra, no one would do it, all right? But it doesn't. It feels really good. I was talking with a, a woman with HIV who's a former heroin injector, and she started using when she was 17. And I said, why? Like, what was it like? What? She said, you know, I realized that I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. It felt so good the best thing she'd ever experienced. So it's kind of hard to compete with the best thing you've ever experienced, right? For most of my patients, they fall into the feel better category, right? Most of the women that we take care of are victims of sexual violence uh, or physical violence or both. And they want to numb themselves. And I think we could understand why, right? It, it makes sense that you would want to forget. And so in addition to opioids, some of the big issues that we deal with are things that numb the brain, like benzodiazepines, alcohol. There are many substances that numb, and that becomes, in the self-medication hypothesis of addiction, 
one of the reasons that people keep going back to substances. But the big question is, well, why do you become addicted? Just because you did a drug doesn't make you an addict. Why do you become addicted? And everything, everything in medicine's on this continuum. That's what a professor told me. It's Michael Brown. He discovered this thing called LDL and got a Nobel Prize. But he was still smart despite that, right? And on the continuum, he said, look, everything's on there. If, if you want to say, well, but isn't Down syndrome only genetic? No, there's an environmental factor, right? Age of mom impacts that genetic outcome. So there are lots of things on this, and addiction is one of them. It's a combination of the genetic predisposition to substances. So some people, if you've ever talked to substance users, they'll say, like, I don't know why people smoke crack. Like, that's just crazy. I hate that stuff. People say, oh, like, why do people do heroin? All you do is fall asleep. That's stupid, right? People will have certain experiences, and some of that is genetically the way they are. Some of it is environmentally, right? And there have been some very elegant studies on looking at the genetics, which we don't have time to talk about. But the real issue is that it's both. Medications we're going to use to treat the biologic part, but therapy is the key for the environmental part. And the big, big thing here is that drugs themselves take over very primal motivational circuits. The same wiring in your head that told you that eating lunch was a good idea and gave you a dopamine surge after that as a neurobiological reward is the same cycle that heroin uses. Heroin just takes that amp and goes to 11, right? It just takes it all the way up, right? When you talk to heroin users about the experience of heroin, they typically say it's just, it's better than the best sex you've ever had, right? We're not gonna, there's no heiress question about sex, so don't worry, right? This is the life of a heroin addict, and this is from the 1960s. This is published by uh, Vincent Dole, Marie Nicewander, and Mary Jean Creek. Uh, Dole and Nicewander and Mary Jean were all involved in the beginnings of methadone. And this is the basic cycle of a substance user. So on the far left, you see these little tick marks, right? And those are the ingestions of heroin, right? And so this is the 1960s, remember? So high, straight, and sick all meant different things. But uh, the high is euphoria feeling fantastic. As time moves on, you develop tolerance. And now, you're really, 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 what? Trying to get high? No, you're just trying to avoid being sick. And a lot of risk happens there. We were doing outreach in New Haven, and a, a woman came up, and we were trying to engage her in uh, substance use treatment. She, she like totally ignored me, walks up to this outreach worker, and asks him if, for $10, he wanted a blowjob. And he's got a Yale badge on, I'm, I'm his supervisor, I'm standing right there, and he says, you know, um, no. <laughs> but I could get you into drug treatment today. Five dollars. <laughs> no, but I could get you into treatment. She got down to two bucks, then a car pulled up, she jumped in that, and we weren't able to engage her. Why was she lowering her price? Because a bag of heroin in New Haven's ten bucks. So she was going to get one act, one drug, and be done, but she's now saying, I have to do two acts or five acts in order to get the money to do this. Why? She was an opiate withdrawal. So opiate withdrawal is a big time in which people engage in risk, right? Don't take your meds, do whatever you need to do, rob the bank, what do you need to do to feel better? And then on the far right, something that's happening increasingly in our society is either A, people are injecting and getting high, trying to get that high again and overdose, or B, people are using stronger opioids and they don't know it. When you market heroin on the street, it's all the same baggy size, all the same contents. And if you don't have a PhD in chemistry and you add too much of that synthetic heroin, or you know, the carfentanil, which is 10,000 times stronger than heroin, it doesn't take a lot. 
to overdose someone. So this is old data, right? This is from uh, Dave Metzger's study in the early 90s, and it basically shows what we all here know, which is methadone and also buprenorphine. Those are HIV prevention. So what are we doing in Tanzania? We're doing methadone programs in Tanzania as HIV prevention. Because if you're not injecting, you're markedly decreasing your risk. Now, it's not zero, right? Why isn't it zero? People have sex, right? There are lots of ways to acquire HIV. Something that I was asked to speak very briefly on, because we obviously don't have time to talk about the trans theoretical model of change. Its name itself takes too much time to say. The basic idea here is that people are in various stages of change, and this is critically important in all healthcare, right? And we say this a lot in, when we're taking care of people with HIV, we meet people where they are, right? Well, some of our patients, where they are is, I don't have a problem, right? You ever had a patient like that? I don't have a problem, right? I, that happens to me every day, right? I don't have a problem. So that's called pre-contemplation. In AA, we call it denial. But the basic idea is you have no understanding that you have a problem, right? Well, what works in that situation is not, you got a problem. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't, right? That doesn't go very far. So in pre-contemplation, which tends to be the real struggle when people are trying to, and this is very important, tobacco cessation, where patients are like, Look, you know, I, mean, I don't need to quit smoking, it's not that bad. Pre-contemplation means they have a lack of self-awareness. And so the only way that works is trying to bring in external evidence that they can acknowledge. So I'm often saying things like, well, I know you don't think you have a problem, but your parole officer is looking at reincarcerating you. That seems like a problem. Or DCF is involved in your life, the Department of Children's and Families, and they're going to take your children from you. That seems like a problem. Right? Bringing in external evidence that they really are willing to acknowledge, tying the behavior to the external thing they're willing to acknowledge, helps tear down pre-contemplation and helps people start to think about, well, wait a minute, may maybe I do have a problem. But those are the, the hardest folks to try and help with, and that's really where basic harm reduction becomes important. You're going to keep injecting, let me give you syringes. Medication-assisted treatment, right, or opioid substitution treatment, as is in the title of the talk, is the same. Right? So globally, we talk about opioid substitution treatment. In the US, we talk about medication-assisted treatment. Both buprenorphine and methadone have outstanding histories and the ability to provide care for patients with HIV and reduce opioid use. There are some recent data presented at CROI by Sandy Springer looking at individuals who are incarcerated with HIV who were released and were maintained on a depo-naltrexone formulation the depo-naltrexone formulation was able to maintain sobriety. Those are also materially very different patients than some of the people you may see coming in off the clinic, into the streets of the clinic, saying, hey man, I used heroin yesterday, I need help today. So, you know, they're all FDA approved for the treatment of opioid dependence, but clinically we gravitate to methadone and buprenorphine, especially in the early stages, looking to, if people want to later, they can transition. So this is an MRI, obviously, at the top, and a PET scan below. And this is just the basics of why we use medication-assisted treatment. So what's lighting up here is the mu opioid receptor, which is where all opioids go. And on the far right, you can see there's this big red dot in the middle at the top, right? That's the nucleus accumbens. That's the reward center of the brain. That's where, if you've ever had something really awesome happen and you felt fantastic, you had a runner's high or a whatever, it came from that little area in the brain. 
and not surprisingly, it's saturated with opiate receptors, right? So the top is with no buprenorphine, but as you see as we go down in dosing here, or increasing dosing going down the chart, you see that, what are we doing? We're filling up the brain. So I always tell my patients, look, basically what we're doing is we're filling the parking lot up in your brain with a medication. If you go out and do heroin, there's no place to park, all right? Time for a question. It's not about sex. How many patients do you treat with buprenorphine for opioid use disorder? I don't have a waiver, and so I can't treat anyone. I have a waiver, but I don't do it. And then various ranges of patients that you might be taking care of. Next time we'll do like a little Miles Davis or John Coltrane. They were heroin addicts, right? There's a clinic at 125th Street named after Billie Holiday as a, as a heroin addict. I don't have a waiver and so can't treat anyone. I have a waiver, but don't do it yet. So, wow, that's a lot of people. So I wanna encourage you, treating people with buprenorphine is so much easier than hep C treatment, HIV treatment, TB treatment, the treatment of high blood pressure and diabetes, right? Getting someone to change their lifestyle, right? That's really difficult. Um, buprenorphine, our, a lot of our primary care providers have loved starting to prescribe buprenorphine because those are some of the easiest clinical visits that they do and some of the most rewarding because they see people go from a life in chaos to a life where they have more control. So I encourage you to reconsider it. This is what happens when people are on medication-assisted treatment. The M's here are methadone and the H is heroin. And the basic idea here, this is again from Dolan Nicewander, that as they got people on methadone, methadone helped them feel normal and fine. If they used heroin, the parking lot was full. The big piece here though is to remember like, uh, if you've ever seen some of the horrible press that methadone has gotten in the world, methadone is probably the most life-saving medication that is treated so miserably, right? I, rarely do I hear of people saying, yeah, I'm so happy my son got on methadone, it saved his life, right? Usually people are like, God forbid, you know, methadone's only for really bad people. I will tell you, methadone is amazing, it saves lives, the reason that we did methadone in Africa, it is it has the best retention, incredible success, and it's dirt cheap. So we can save thousands of people. So whatever people may have told you about methadone, the people who are nodding out, those kinds of things, they're on too high a dose or they're abusing other drugs. Properly dosed methadone, you wouldn't know it. You would not be able to look at someone and know. So we mentioned methadone, great retention, Buprenorphine has, it can be office-based, so methadone has to be in an opioid treatment program, so a methadone maintenance program. For anybody here in the US government who would like to help us change that and have office-based methadone treatment, I would be very, very appreciative. It's very effective. Many countries do office-based methadone treatment. Canada, for example, you get it from your GP, go to the pharmacy, get your methadone. Buprenorphine can be done in an office-based setting, so we do it in our HIV clinical settings. We also do it in some of our addiction treatment facilities. It's efficacious, but retention is less. Naltrexone, when compared head-to-head -head oral naltrexone and buprenorphine, retention was markedly less in naltrexone. That's because naltrexone's a blocker. There's nothing reinforcing neurobiologically happening, right? So 
if you take a pill every day and that pill says, well, it didn't make me feel better, but now I can't get high, what happens? You stop taking it. Just like disulfiram or antabuse for alcohol, you just stop taking it, right? So the depot also has struggles. The problem is that it's in you for 30 days, but then you leave and you don't come back for the next shot, right? So that works really well. Like as in, I mentioned, the prison-based setting, you're coming out of prison, you've been sober for years, this is a way to maintain where you are, but it's very difficult, especially early in addiction, to get folks onto a depo-naltrexone formulation. We usually start again with methadone or buprenorphine. If you just jump off a program, what happens? Well, you're back to injecting. Why is that? I mentioned that treatment is both biologic, the medication, but also you have to address the environmental. People need therapy. So in our methadone clinic, the methadone is actually a licensed mental health clinic as well, and they're therapists, and their job is to do real therapy. If you're a victim of sexual assault, you need more than just methadone, right? You need therapy to address that trauma. You need evidence-based treatment in order to address what's going on. If you don't do that, what happens? Well, people go back to the behavior they were doing before. And that's not a failure of methadone, and that's not a failure of the person. So I just want to clarify, right? If we never treated one of the root causes, let's not blame the patient. We didn't provide adequate services. What are the best practices? You've got to make treatment nice and easy. You've got to get people quickly on treatment. You've got to provide culturally appropriate counseling. And it can be as simple as Narcotics Anonymous, right? The 12 steps or CBT. And obviously we need to be treating the medical issues as well. Why did I stress that? So one of the mantras that we have in PEPFAR's work in, in Africa around methadone maintenance is low threshold, high volume, right? Low threshold, because if it is harder to get treatment, you're not going to go. And if you're not high enough volume, you won't make an impact. If opioid overdose, if DC is number four in the country, but most of us here don't treat anyone with opioid problems, right, you're going to have high threshold, low access. We can't as a city actually make a difference. So you got to have low threshold. It's got to be easy. Drug dealers do home delivery. Okay, right? In Hartford, there's like the ice cream truck that goes around at two in the morning. They're not delivering ice cream. Okay. People who use drugs and, are in, uh, and have HIV certainly have high morbidity and mortality. This is obvious. They have high rates of hep C, high rates of liver disease. One of the big things I'm dealing now is with all my patients who are cirrhotic, trying to help them kind of navigate their cirrhosis because some of these guys, it was um, they either mistreatment or getting treatment late. Um, one of the big things is we should not discriminate because our patients can take medications. For hep C, we're treating active drinkers, we're treating people who are using drugs. Why are we doing that? Because the treatment works. The big issue is adherence. And um, you know, all of the adherence studies in the world have shown that you sitting there looking at someone can't predict what the future will hold. If you have been successful at predicting the future, talk to me later. I'm looking at some lottery numbers and I really want some guidance. So it's very important just to remember that in the past, people who injected drugs were denied HIV therapy, right? And I'm sure all of us may remember those days. But drug users can take uh, medications. Evan Woods in British Columbia had a very nice cohort and showed that there was no difference in resistance of people who injected drugs and did not. So we should not discriminate among injectors. People all over the world are linking drug treatment with good HIV or hep C outcomes. I was in India in November. 
They were linking directly observed DAAs. They're giving Declatosphere and Sofosbuvir, $120 for both for the whole regimen, uh, for their patients, directly observed with the buprenorphine. In Tanzania, we're doing directly observed therapy for HIV and TB. The TB rates in the methadone clinic are 5,000 per 100,000. It's the highest in the world of the mines in South Africa. That's 8,000 per 100,000. So you can use treatment like this, like buprenorphine. People will come to clinic for this. They will stay engaged in treatment with you, and you can have very good outcomes as a result. In your package, you have two standardized screening questions for substance use disorders. These were actually not piloted in HIV clinical settings, but within the context of primary care and have been validated. These are two easy things that your medical assistant or nurse could ask people once a year or every six months just to get a feel for whether or not your patients are using substances. And it's important, very important to know this information. I've mentioned that people can be taking their medications adequately. I keep saying it because I want to remind everyone. Everyone here, remember, you're number four in overdose. Everyone here should be thinking about becoming a naloxone prescriber to the community, right? And also should really reconsider becoming a buprenorphine provider. There have been some guidelines that we developed on the treatment of chronic pain in people with HIV. And I referenced you guys uh, to that. There have been a lot of very useful websites that have been put together by the American Pain Society, the American Academy of Pain Medicine. The PC PCSS, Providers Clinical Support System for MAT, is a cooperation uh, from among, uh, many different agencies. It's a great resource if you've got some questions to just tag into that and get some information. Below also uh, is the SAMHSA website to get you linked into buprenorphine training, which I encourage everyone to consider. Uh, Carlos, who spoke to you earlier, conducted a meeting at the National Academy of Science looking at integrating infectious disease considerations with response to the opioid epidemic. And on the far right, you'll see there are kind of other meeting resources. And one of the big plus signs there says presentations. All those, the slides and the video content are available. And this is a conversation about opioid epidemic, particularly infectious disease environments. So it's something also to be thinking about. And finally, this is the guideline. It's publicly available. We published it in November, or September, I guess, was the e-publishing. E the, what was published in the journal is very abbreviated and only the highlights. If you go to the online resource, it's about 100 pages of discussion, data, everything that supports the recommendations, but is a very good resource uh, and hopefully uh, will be useful in the clinical environments as well. And with that, I thank you for your time. And if you have any questions, please feel free to ask now or otherwise feel free to give me an email. Thank you so much. Dr. Sag, come up and we'll uh, all uh, ask, or you want to ask one from Just down there, one, but you might one. as well come up and uh, provide your perspective up here. Well, so I, I, I loved your comment that um, the treating with buprenorphine for addiction is easier than treating hep C and HIV, and everyone in this audience is getting pretty comfortable with HIV. Why do we need a certificate in an eight-hour online course to do that, there are very few things in medicine where that's required. So, um, yes, very, very few things. The basic concern, so I'm trying to say this correctly um, and not get in trouble. So, the basic concern was a political concern that if 
individuals were allowed to prescribe this and there was no monitoring, that doctors would set up shop and become pill mills on buprenorphine. The concerns around methadone were the fears that methadone diversion would become a big problem in the city, in New York where it started. So we have enough data to know that OxyContin prescription is much more dangerous and if anything should be regulated in this country and require special mm -hmm. licensure, mm -hmm. it should be OxyContin and so fentanyl just, and not That was my follow-up question. Yeah. yeah, you read but, my mind. But it literally requires an act of Congress to change that. Literally? Literally. It's, it's a federal law. The data 2001, it's a federal statute. SAMHSA has been wonderful in helping to expand the original number, which was 30 patients per practice. So when this started, the entire Yale faculty practice is one practice. So all of us had, could put 30 patients, right? But, but that is, you know, up to now, if you've been a prescriber for a while, you can actually take care of 275 patients, which is a lot of patients. So SAMHSA has been very helpful to move that along, but to do away with the actual requirement would require an amendment to the data 2000 law. Okay. I forgot to say, you should come up this way for the uh, end of the yeah. program. Uh, question over on the left. Thank you. Um, so for patients that are on an opioid substitution, you know, whatever, buprenorphine or methadone, and they have chronic non-malignant pain, um, is there a consideration in terms of the use of opioids for that population versus people without that who I Absolutely. Know. That's, a, that's a great question. So, and the guideline talks a lot about, about that. But in, in summary, the, our initial recommendation was one, methadone maintenance programs are allowed to split dose for multiple reasons. Pain is not one, but you, a methadone program can put in an exemption waiver, which goes to SAMHSA and the state authorities, and can allow for a more than once daily dosing for a patient. Methadone's analgesic ability is really in the kind of three, probably four times a day. The most that we can do in our system is twice daily dosing for pain. So we dose you in the morning, give you a bottle, you can take methadone at night. Buprenorphine can also, it's believed that by split dosing, you get better analgesia. And that has to do with analgesia being at the peak of the drug level, but what's necessary for maintenance for the opioid use disorder is the trough, which is why you can do once daily methadone for opioid use disorder, but you need it more often for pain. There are a couple of questions about the use of buprenorphine for opioids versus heroin. Yes. Uh, so. Um, buprenorphine has a very, 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 very high binding affinity. And so you can treat somebody who's addicted to, actually um, a patient was just transferred to me recently with HIV, had been put on pain meds, benzos, all kinds of things over time. And his previous provider, I think, got tired of writing him narcotics and things. So they sent him to me. I was concerned about his substance use disorder. He was drinking and doing other things as well. And so we transitioned him off of fentanyl onto buprenorphine. And he is now taking, he was doing relatively well with eight milligrams in the morning and is now, uh, because of his chronic pain, gonna be taking it twice a day. But so it doesn't have to be just for heroin, it can be for any opioid. And we transition people often off of methadone. Methadone can be difficult to get off of which is why it's so good with retention. But we will taper people down, transition them to buprenorphine and taper off buprenorphine because buprenorphine is very easy to get off of. How important do you think it is for practitioners who use bu buprenorphine to have psychiatric or other behavioral health 
uh, uh, associates that they uh, have ready access to. So I think it is important. Um, it, the, the key factors are, you know, if, if patients fall into kind of different buckets, right, there are people that can take buprenorphine and do well and never need therapy. There are patients that no matter how much therapy you give will never do well, right? They're, they're, and those need to be in a specialized system. SAMHSA puts together a, a things called treatment improvement protocols or TIPS, and TIP 40 is on buprenorphine and TIP 42 is on comorbidities. And they've got these great charts in there trying to help you kind of graph out, well, my patient's high on mental health, high on addiction, where do they go? They need to be in a specialized environment. So the expectation is never in an office-based environment that you have all of the answers, solutions, or skills to address everything a patient throws at you. But the key for you would be, if my patient's still using heroin and they're on a therapeutic dose, that should be the big key that there's really something else going on here and this person needs therapy. And this is the person that you're gonna wanna connect to as expeditiously as possible to a skilled clinician that you know. So having a referral link and being able to communicate with people would be important. And the last, oh, go ahead. I, I believe earlier this year there was a long acting injectable version of buprenorphine that was approved. Yep. I was wondering if you've had any experience with it and how difficult would, is it normally to get coverage for that? So it's a great question. So we have not been using it, um, and the real reason is a thing called contingency management. So we use buprenorphine as contingency management, which is a, basically a reward for achieving certain things, right? So if I need you to come in every week for therapy, you're getting weekly buprenorphine scripts. My big concern with the long acting, and I think its use is gonna be probably in people who've been sober for years, and I've got one patient that we're thinking about doing this with, because he's, he's been on buprenorphine for 10 years or so now, uh, where that would fit in well. But for a lot of our people early on especially, we're only giving limited quantities and we're tying different things to it. When you see your therapist, when you see the psychiatrist, when you come in for adherence counseling, when you see the nurse, and, and people follow that buprenorphine around, and we've had great outcomes as a result of that. I think one of the traditions in this course is that Mike Sag always has the last word. So before he has the last word, uh, we really appreciate the fact that this has been a very interactive audience, and uh, Washington is always a great venue for the course. The faculty, I think we've been fortunate to uh, really attract uh, terrific faculty. We wouldn't be able to put this on without sponsors who help keep the cost down. And finally, I think for, uh, uh, for Kristen, for Rob, for Donna, IS really does a great job of putting this together. And I think uh, uh, everybody deserves a hand for uh, making this successful, successful tour. So, so with, do, you, do you want to give a 30-second summary of everything sure. that was said here? Sure. Okay, here we go. We started off with opportunistic infections and learned what's new there and some of what's not new there. We then went on to, uh, to hear about PrEP, and there is a lot new there and how we can manage PrEP, the 211 approach, which is emerging, uh, that type of thing. Uh, we then heard updates from Croy. There's a whole smorgasbord that David Hardy went over with us, and that was uh, uh, kind of exciting, especially some of the newer approaches uh, for uh, treatment that Joe Iron later went into. You had to suffer through my uh, uh, show tune songs, but you survived, and uh, we went over uh, issues relating to common 
the questions that come up in the clinic. Um, in the afternoon, we started off with uh, a story or a series of, of, of uh, events from Carlos Del Rio talking to us about engagement in care, talking to us about initiation of ARVs rapidly, but maybe uh, we can't do it quite as rapidly as uh, we would, might like because of social constraints, but that was uh, pretty nice. Joe Iron then talked to us about <coughs> new drugs, and there's a lot of new things coming, especially in the long acting. We then segued into hepatitis C, and we're seeing a lot more of that in a lot of ways to uh, get that under control, and then we finished up with an opioid high and, uh, and ended up uh, all on buprenorphine when it was all said and done. So that's kind of an exciting day. Thanks for hanging in there with us and uh, hope to see you guys back next year. Thanks to Henry and the faculty and every, all of you.